Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash canadaland to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Can we get on with it already? Serious, I, I I don't mean to sound so frustrated. I like what happens here. I find it really interesting to look at everything that is wrought by the collapse of Canada's media. I think that the cracks that have always been there as they get wider, as the resources get lower, to look at what is misreported, to look at what gets spiked, to look at what is censored, to look at how owners interject their opinions into things, all of this is endlessly fascinating, not just because it tells you something about the state of this industry, but because I think that all of society's prejudices and all sorts of influences of power beyond the media itself get expressed through these cracks, these fissures in the media. However, there is a point at which it starts to feel like you're just kicking a corpse in the head. This is an inelegant analogy, I know, uh, but there you have it. It just feels like like we're going to do that. We're going to tell you every time there's another round of layoffs, every time there is some advertiser influence in a story. Somebody needs to do that work, and it's, it's not a burden to do it, but it's confirming what you already know. 
The media is in terrible shape. It's not getting any better. We need something new to happen. What I want to start to do this season is try to look forward a little bit. And it's dangerous. There's all this talk about solutions journalism out there. It's not really the job of journalism to prescribe solutions, to try to fix things. I mean, we're more in the diagnosis business. We, we're, we tell you what's wrong, which is actually easier to do accurately than to tell you how it should be fixed, which is prescriptive and which can get you into a lot of dangerous territory. But I think that to whatever extent we're analyzing this stuff, we can talk about what we want to have. What What is the positive direction that we want to move things in? And with that in mind, I'm going to talk today with Ian Gill. Ian Gill is the author of a new book called No News is Bad News, Canada's Media Collapse and What Comes Next. And we're going to try to emphasize the what comes next part. Ian Gill is a journalist. He's a newspaper guy. He used to be a hack at the Vancouver Sun, later an editor. Then he was a documentary reporter for CBC Television. He's written some other books. He's made some films. He joins me in a minute. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Matt Spears, Dorian Scheid, Gerald Dio, Rob Charon, Michael Boronowski, Victoria Marshall, Nicole Wilson, and April Dean. April, why did you decide to be awesome? Because initially, I think I just loved the sound of uh, your voice on the radio, but also I think we're in a really uh, critical time for media and journalism, and Canada Land is asking some some important This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody Half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. Questions. This episode is also brought to you by Audible. Audible.com, of course, is the destination for audiobooks. And if you like podcasts, you're probably going to like audiobooks. If you have not tried them out yet, 
check it out. It is a wonderful way to read books, which is something that I find myself having less and less time to do. You can listen to books at the gym during your commute. Audible.com has audiobooks from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, entertainers, magazine and newspaper publishers, and business information providers. They have a free app that works on iPhones, iPad, Android, and Windows Phone. You can also download and listen on your Kindle Fire or like on 500 other types of MP3 players. And unlike a streaming or rental service for audiobooks with Audible, you own your audiobooks and you can access them anytime, anywhere, right from your phone. And they have a great listen guarantee. So if you don't like the book that you buy, no worries. You can exchange it for another book, no questions asked. Check it out. Start your free trial today. Show your support for Canada Land. Free 30-day trial at audible.com slash Canada. This episode is also brought to you by ShipStation. ShipStation is a solution for people who sell things on the internet. And there are so many ways to do that now. You're probably selling stuff on Etsy. You probably have your own website. You might use Shopify or like a dozen or a hundred other places. And all of that together is your business. All of the orders that you sell through those many places. But if you are selling through all those different outlets, then you've got a huge part of your job collecting those orders and figuring out what the best shipping solution is and printing out the labels. Well, in the time that it took me to describe this problem, you could have solved that problem with ShipStation. They are one destination that sucks all that order data from all those different places and spits out shipping labels that are optimized for what is going to be your best, most efficient, cheapest shipping option, be it FedEx or Canada Post or whatever. It is compatible with all of Canada's shipping services. So no wonder ShipStation is the number one choice of online sellers. And here is your special offer. Try it for free for 30 days. And if you're a listener of this podcast, use the offer code CanadaLand. Do not wait. Go to ShipStation.ca before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage. Type in CanadaLand for your special bonus offer. That is ShipStation.ca. Enter CanadaLand. Uh, you write that what is happening to Canada's newspapers feels personal to you. Why is this a personal matter, Ian? Uh, well, I'm an old newspaper man. Your emphasis on the old and emphasis on the man. Uh, so there's two strikes against me. But uh, it's personal because I sort of started in newspapers in the old-fashioned way and grew up with them and uh, loved them to death. You, know, I, I uh, have had a love affair with newspapers all my life, and that has definitely waned. It really feels like a very sad place we're in with um, newspapers, and in particular in a country like Canada that needs diverse voices more than many countries do because of our demographics and our geography. It just seems like uh, the whole thing's, well, if you'll pardon the expression, it's kind of gone to ratchet. That's a technical term. <laughs> I mean, your book is swimming in waters that I'm very familiar with, and uh, you know, and yet you kind of make me seem like... Uh, like an optimist at, at times. Uh, you write that we are being robbed blind, right. mugged by the oligarchs. Right. What do you mean by that? Well, that's been going on for a while. Well, I mean, um, as you know, I talk quite a lot about media concentration, um, the media ownership concentration. And then you end up with these you know, enormously powerful media corporations with what looks to me like no real responsibility to the public at all. And they don't seem to even have much responsibility to their shareholders, from what I can tell, because they keep tanking these things and reviving them and staggering along and looking for their uh, you know, hedge fund debt payments to sustain this model that just seems so 
utterly out of date and so that so ill serves the public. And then you actually pick up a, a Canadian newspaper and you think, oh my God, you know, like why am I even doing this? You know, the quality is so poor. And that's assuming you're in a place where you can even pick up a newspaper. I mean, it really is shocking the extent to which this country is so poorly served. So to go back to your question, why am I taking this so personally? You know, I started off in an industry with a great deal of optimism um, around the ability to work in a field that was you know, full of ideas and that was kind of at the cutting edge of what society was thinking. And now it just feels like we're sitting on a kind of wet pile of kind of old newspapers that are just, you know, rotting beneath us and it all feels kind of damp and dank and you know i have to say we're going to be solutions focused here but it feels a bit depressing <laughs> we're off to a great start for our, our solutions-based conversation i mean it, it, it's it, there's an interesting tension in, in what you're right because you know you're saying now the same things it's, it's ratchet it's just this this pile of i mean they, the, the quality is it's really hard to mount a defense for these papers the Vancouver Sun, where you used to work, you say that it's it's devolved. It's an utter embarrassment to the city. Uh, so things have never been worse, and I don't think that that's just crying in your beer. I think that that like anybody who cares about this stuff or has been watching it over any kind of period of time can 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 look at these papers. They're thinner than they ever were. They're slighter than they ever ever were. And then there are these problems when you get into some of the content. You know, when it's not just insipid or asinine, you're like, wait a second, what is this endorsement or what are you writing? It's it, all of the standards that I think you grew up in uh, have, have really shown a lot of uh, slippage. And yet you also have this uh, sentimentality. Like you, in fact, you say when it comes to being sentimental about newspapers, I've got form and you do, you write that papers have a weight and authority that other media cannot match and never will. One area where I was a little bit skeptical was this, this almost religious adherence to the ideals of what newspapers once were. I mean, if they ever were, because I, I do agree that they're worse than they've ever been, but I also feel like there's no shortage of pomp and self-congratulation when I hear old-timer uh, newspaper people talking about the glory days. I mean, there were always serious problems. Even when I was at the Vancouver Sun back in the 80s, you know, it was a not bad newspaper. It wasn't a good newspaper. It wasn't brilliant. You know, it was okay. They recently did this redesign, which it, the paper is almost unrecognizable now, even as a newspaper. And the redesign was sponsored by the Kia Motor Company. So you've got a company that produces bad cars. You're sponsoring the redesign of a bad newspaper. I mean, there's something really obscene about that. <laughs> you, you were talking about that kind of ridiculous um, PR campaign that we saw over a year ago. Right. The journalism is campaign. Right. So this is when Ryerson and, and, and the media union and the media companies got together and said, well, what are we going to do about this crisis in journalism? We're just going to sort of batter the public with uh, these, you know, kind of guilty reminders about how important we are. And uh, their own terminology, they would say, we are essential to democracy. We are relentless. What is journalism? It is a watchdog over the powerful. Uh, which all of which you describe as an insipid campaign. <laughs> I got a chuckle when you said, it sounds like nothing so much as a drunken reporter about to fall off her stool at the National Press Club of Canada, except you can't even do that anymore because the press club went bankrupt and shut its doors in 2007. Yeah, it's sad. When you're in a newsroom, you've been there, you know what it's like. I mean, there is this sort of notion that there's this higher calling. And most people who work in newsrooms are actually you know, mechanics, they're not artists. So first, you can take a little bit of the gloss off of that. Journalism could and should be, and 
sometimes was, but not always, a basic sort of civic service. I don't think a journalist, when he or she is going to work, um, walk into their workplace, should think of themselves as any grander a part of the scheme of things than somebody who is delivering our mail or somebody who's possibly picking up our garbage. I mean, we've got work to do to help democracy function. In many cases, for many journalists, it's not much more glorious than that. Yeah, I kind of think that we would be doing ourselves a favor and actually pushing the ball forward if we dropped some of that uh, high-mindedness, uh, which is not to say that we should just get in the gutter and do clickbait and have everything be sponsored and you know lose the ethical standards. But this idea that uh, we are integral to democracy. I mean, we are, but that's not a good look. The job is not to protect democracy. That might be a product of the job. But the job is just to tell people what's going on, right? Um, if we think of journalism as storytelling and if we understand that the way people make sense of their world is that they do that mostly through story, um, then there's an incredibly interesting and powerful role for journalism to continue to have uh, and for institutions like the CBC, which should be, you know, why do we have a Canadian Broadcasting Corporation? What does broadcasting even mean anymore, like literally? And why do we have a corporation rather than a service? You know, why is not the Canadian Storytelling Service, essentially the CBC, and why do we not use the incredible infrastructure and the channels that already exist and that are actually publicly paid for to deliver the sort of stories to help Canadians make sense of their world? And I mean, I don't think of the service as just you know, car ads and explainers on travel and you know, fashion and everything else. I mean, the actual service uh, where the whole solutions part is really interesting and the solutions journalism is emerging as an interesting model is actually communities need reporting in their communities to help make sense of the world and to help them make decisions. And if you look at northern British Columbia right now, where there's this enormous amount of uh, industrial development planned, uh, LNG pipelines, oil refineries, all these sort of things, there's some towns up there, you know, Terrace, uh, Kitimat, Prince Rupert, Smithers, that whole sort of zone over in northwestern BC. There's almost no journalism infrastructure in those communities. There's this whole concept now of news poverty where even large regional centres don't have TV stations anymore, maybe have a radio station, maybe have a newspaper, often don't. So then when there are council meetings or the uh, First Nations band is meeting or there's uh, the Premier comes to town waving you know, placards about how many jobs he's going to create or whatever else. There is no critical analysis at all in places that don't have journalism happening. Uh, and that's really, really problematic. And so then if you take the attitude, well, well, let's find a way to pay for doing journalism in places where these massive um, undertakings are about to take place or not, which have enormous consequences, not just for a corner of British Columbia, but for the country in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, in terms of whether we're going to convert from fossil fuels to something more sustainable. Um, these are large national debates that are happening in the dark. So journalism can perform an actual service um, which, you know, I'd have to say is possibly a little more glorious than some of the municipal services that are delivered, but is purposeful in terms of helping communities understand what's actually happening and what decisions are being made in Ottawa that may affect them in Prince Rupert. That's where journalism can actually make a real contribution, it seems to me. 
You return to that a lot, uh, the idea that we should be thinking about journalism as a service and not as a product, and that one of the follies of the way the big brands are, are considering what's happening now and the trouble they've gotten into is they're saying, well, we've lost control of our product. Our product is being shared for free or uh, the advertising rates that we get for our product are less than they used to be. And how do we get people to pay for our product? And that kind of proprietary attitude, the idea that you have a brand and that brand creates uh, some sort of consumer good is flawed. That really what, what you're there to do is it's a daily operation. It's ephemeral. It's you show up, you tell people what's happening. If somebody picks up your story and it, and it spreads like crazy, that's a good thing. You've done your service well. You haven't, nothing's been stolen from you. You're doing what you're supposed to do. Right. And then the question comes to some degree to how do you monetize that? You know, to some degree, I think we stand back and let the innovators in technology space do what they do. What we don't have yet is a corresponding sort of set of innovations in terms of content development and actually uh, figuring out what stories communities need and telling them well and telling them in, in different ways because, of course, just taking a bunch of text generated in the old style of a newspaper and then dumping it on a website and calling that a digital strategy, I mean, you can do that if you want. There are so many more channels, so many more ways in which you can um, aggregate and then disaggregate information in ways that are really appealing to a different demographic. Uh, there are going to be ways to make money at that. This can get really fuzzy. Uh, when you start talking about new forms of storytelling, new tools, new technologies, and you know, like what, what, what exactly? And we're, let's try to have a practical conversation. And I, I don't consider myself any kind of a technological innovator, but I am a person who's running a small news organization that that is in the black, that is functioning and sustainable. Right. I'm a very simple thinker when it comes to business and many other things, but especially when it comes to business. And I always return to this basic concept that. If we are all agreed that this is a valuable service, then the way that people express value in our society is they pay for it. And we've all arrived prematurely at this, at this conclusion that uh, no one will pay for news. I wonder, and I'm just going to throw this out there, okay, for anybody to do anything with it, they think there's anything to it. And I don't claim to have the solution for, for everything, but I know it worked in, in, in my case, and I'm shocked that it isn't being tried in different forms elsewhere. So you talk about these communities, not tiny communities either, that have no journalistic representation. And whenever I hear about that, the, the newspaper Nanaimo going under after over 100 years, uh, in Guelph, all these different communities, what I wonder is why the laid-off journalists are not knocking on doors and saying, hi, nice to meet you, I'm your friendly neighborhood journalist, I'm out of a job, and no one is watching town council right now. And, and there's a really good chance that those guys are giving themselves a raise and awarding a no-bid contract to their brother-in-law. Will you give me five bucks a month and I will be your person at City Hall? Why are we not seeing anywhere near the same scale of uh, experimentation and entrepreneurship in journalism content in Canada that we're seeing everywhere else in the Western world? Partly because I think there is still enough life in some of these um your titanic old media brands that people are still waiting to see if they're going to survive and if that space is going to somehow be retained and that's where the jobs are going to be and people are going to have big pensions and all that sort of stuff. So um, there are people who, are, you know, there's a great guy up in 
uh, Nishka country, for instance, again in northern BC, that's where I am out here, who's uh, an Aboriginal man who you know, is using Facebook to basically spread the news in his community because nobody else is covering the news. I don't think he's making a lot of money at it, but there are people who are thinking about how to do this differently. I think the other thing is to think about, you know, you were asking about storytelling, new forms of storytelling, platforms and multi-platform approaches, you hear all that stuff all the time. But, you know, it's possible to present information um, on the web much more beautifully in some ways and in a much more agile way from a design point of view than we were ever able to do with a newspaper. So that's an advantage and people respond to that, especially if they can see it on their phone. Um, You can report one story uh, as a text story uh, online, but you can have your text on video. For instance, we just did a project at Discourse here that went crazy with people basically watching a one minute and 20 second video with text on it. You've probably seen that all over the place. Al Jazeera does a lot of that. Um, and Facebook encourages that. So there are ways in really simple ways that um, stories can be told in different forms. There's more and more really good work happening in just using data to uncover stories and to deepen investigative reporting. It's fascinating what's going on in that field. It is. And it's amazing, actually. Like, it's a whole different philosophy of what constitutes a story because usually if you're doing investigative work on institutions, you're looking for outliers. You're looking for situations where something was corrupt or something failed or something was unlike the norm. You know, and, and da- data tells you not about that outlier, that freak incident that, that you know, is uh, character-driven, but about, like, no, actually, we've looked over 20 years at millions of cases, and we found some alarming trends here. This is a golden age for the news reader, and this is a golden age for the news as an experimental form, as all these new modes. uh, I don't mean to suggest that they're um, trivial or silly or that that's fuzzy. I mean, there's wonderful work being done. It's just incredible how how little of that progress is relating (laughs) to the the basic underlying economic model. How important is it to be first anymore? How, I mean, someone just about anywhere is always going to be faster to know something than I am. And when I think about it, I don't actually care whether I'm the first to know something. I mean, I do think, I have a belief that Canadians firstly aren't stupid. They know what's going on, that they're being poorly served by conventional media. They're actually prepared to pay for content and they're prepared to not be you know, insulted in the sort of coverage, you know, to have their intelligence uh, basically insulted. I mean, if you pick up, look at the Globe these days, for instance, I mean, it calls itself the national newspaper, which it's not by any stretch of the imagination, unless the nation includes you know, a few hundred thousand people who make more than $100,000 a year. If that's the nation, well, then we're kind of screwed. So it's not a national newspaper at all. And the quality of the reporting um, in there has gone down so dramatically, but also the quality of the presentation. It is just not appealing to look at. And then you go and open up your computer or you look on your phone, and there's some beautiful, beautiful content coming on, whether it's virtual reality that the New York Times has done some pioneering work on, or just basically really good-looking websites like Vox, um, you know, that actually sort of allow you to come in and really, uh, you know, get you excited about reading deeply about issues that count. People still want to do that, I have a firm belief. Not everybody, but we're not trying to get to everybody. 
in order to get constructive, we have to get destructive. To hasten their demise would be the most productive thing. I think we can't have new stuff until we get rid of the old stuff for really practical reasons. I, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that, that to make that pitch to the public that, that it's time to pay for this stuff, you, you'll never be able to make that pitch until the legacy players are gone because you, you, just the perception – that you still, oh, we still got the Vancouver Sun. It's not great. I haven't read it in a long time, but you know, it's the news as a service thing. It's, it's, well, at least somebody is performing that service. Someone is there watching, watching our elected officials. Someone's there watching our institutions, whether they are or not. As long as you've got these very established brands, I think it's hard for the little guy to get going. How do we push through the kind of mental space that they still occupy. We don't need to push through as much as you think. I mean, I entirely accept your proposition, and I think one of the problems absolutely is that while the dinosaurs, you know, like the globe and the star and that are sort of um, staggering around, you know, taking one last swoop of their big fat tail to try and knock the other one off the perch, that's going to go on for a while. We don't need to do much because the legacies are finding a way to disappear of their own volition uh, and their own poor judgment. Does that mean all newspapers disappear? I hope not. But, you know, we will end up, I think, with some better newspapers that are more attuned to what the market wants. It'll be very ugly. Some people, more people will lose their jobs and that's too bad because there's some very good reporters work on a number of these papers and um, all these other broadcast outfits. There is going to be this kind of transition where some of these uh, emerging more digital native products uh, are going to be much leaner operations than even the legacies that are dying ironically. But I would love people to be rattled by the fact that the digital products actually begin to achieve the same sort of prominence and importance in the public's eye and in politicians' eyes as, oh, there was an op-ed in the Globe, or did you see that big investigation in the Toronto Star? These legacy media still have just enough juice to convince people that they're important and that they don't want to be on the wrong side of the Star or the Globe or even the Vancouver Sun out here or um, whatever else. I'd love for the deepening of the kind of digital content and for it to rattle the cage just as profoundly as newspapers used to do and have sort of you know, lost their way on. I think I catch what you're, what you're pointing at, but, but it leads us to a, a troubling place, which is this current conversation that the Liberal government has kicked off and having been involved in these, these discussions with the Public Policy Forum about uh, government bailout or government subsidy for the news business, I'm actually like terrified of the government propping up the legacy players and oh for sure you know i mean that's that's a real threat to anyone who's trying to start something oh my goodness we could be in for 20 more years of just this sort of wasted space where things that should be dead now still are propped up somehow um things that could be emerging sort of you have to fight their way up through the sort of fog and Ottawa just goes on being Ottawa. You know, I mean, that's that's there's a high probability that that will occur. The, that is scary for so many reasons, one of which is that, you know, to kind of keep – it's sort of the devil you know. I don't think that Ottawa is uh, terrified of the journalists in the employee of the CBC or Post Media or The Star – at least not as much as you'd hope that they would be afraid of journalists. And I think that the idea of the government sort of propping up those houses, uh, there's definitely a, a church and state thing happening there, which, uh, you know, I, like th that is a conflict that I don't know how you overcome. I do think from a kind of technology innovation, uh, platform innovation, your channel um, innovation, 
some of that can be enhanced and actually, to my belief, could be enhanced by government action. And in fact, in some ways, the government's the only actor out there that can um, accelerate that in any intelligent way. But unless it's truly, there is, there is a sort of a hands-off or a hands-free approach by government once it's actually stimulated this emerging market, then we're in trouble. So your fears are justified, but maybe we could do something very innovative in that space. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you what I think. Like, sure, like, you know, on the one hand, I figure eh, I can't hurt if they figure out some sort of acceleration entrepreneurship fund, make it, you know, tax write-off if somebody wants to, you know, uh, invest in a company. I don't think any logical entrepreneur would be banking on that. Like, I certainly am not waiting for, uh, okay, well, you know, what's really going to help me stay alive is, is, is some kind of government help. No, uh, no, I agree. And going back to what you were saying before about the communities that are discovering that they don't have any journalism, you know, what would be a scenario perhaps where municipalities, you know, maybe through some organization like the Federation of Canadian Municipalities, actually surveyed the kind of news poverty in their communities and a community that doesn't have journalism is a community also that has holes in the street and the lights don't work and the garbage isn't picked up and everything else. I mean, if your infrastructure is decaying or um, is actually no longer functional, then um, I think it's the responsibility of municipal leaders, for instance, to figure out how they can get journalism back into their communities. Could that be done on a competitive bid basis? But I think it's possible to think that at some point Canadians will wake up and say, well, journalism isn't happening here anymore. We need some journalism. And I think on a sort of bootstrap basis, you will get those young people you're talking about, all of those laid-off reporters, we've seen a few examples of that, saying, I don't need all the infrastructure of a post-media newspaper to go down to the corner and cover City Hall. Yeah. I can cover City Hall with an iPhone and with a notebook. Uh, and so that's where the legacy's greatest risk is because they are so top-heavy and uh, delivering less and less. Um, so we will see, um, as we're seeing around the world, I think, people just saying, look, this stuff counts. Um, no one else is doing it. I'm not going to make a fortune doing this, but I can probably make a living at it, uh, and I'd rather do that than deliver the mail. And that's a job. <laughs> and you can't do that either. And so. you can't do that either. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, um, All right, we promised people a happy ending, uh, and uh, I, I'm going to offer one here. And I think it's not necessarily uh, – maybe it's one with a, with, with, with a twist because – I can, I think, guarantee to anybody listening right now that there will be journalism in Canada, that you will be able to uh, wake up in the morning and, and find out what's going on to some extent. And I just feel like the guarantee there lies in the fact that like never before, there is nothing stopping global forces from stepping in and they already have and they and they uh, I know that they're continuing to the, our markets are not you know we're having this conversation about uh, Canadian philanthropists and the Canadian government and these Canadian oligopolies and little Canadian startups we, we are not an island right Ian I mean we we already have BuzzFeed Canada and Huffington Post Canada and Vice Canada we have the New York Times spreading into into Canada They've, they have ambitions on us it's very easy to simply extend these products into our market and you hire a couple people and you call it Bloomberg North or whatever you want to call it. And you just, you just colonize us. The, so for the news reader, I don't think they really have anything to worry about. I mean, I, I, you can start to question 
what the commitments of those organizations are to that kind of local reporting. But, you know, if there's a market for it, I'm sure that they can they can always just hire more. Do we want all of our news journalism in Canada to be produced by foreign companies? The risk of sending xenophobic, it's, it just it doesn't sit well. No, and actually, I think some of what the web enables and some of what the kind of digital revolution enables is, in fact, Canada to be a global player of its own. You know, we could be the people who could actually figure out what uh, globally really good responsible um, community service-based journalism looks like. That would be a very Canadian thing to do. And I think there's optimism um, that Canada could actually be a global player in the reinvention of journalism. I mean, that is optimistic because, you know, we spent this entire conversation talking about how we can't even provide ourselves the necessary journalism. So the idea that we could be some sort of a lighthouse trailblazer for the world uh, might seem overly ambitious or unrealistic, but you know you can kind of look at it the other the other way and, and see how journalistic talent from Canada is doing just that. That we export people who are who are able to produce that kind of innovation and and produce work at the top of the field. And there's even people in the country doing that. So you know why not? I do, however, wonder if one of the reasons why why not is if we embark upon such an ambitious project like that with a loser's mentality that it needs to be propped up. It's like saying that you're going to fail before you even start. Yeah, well, there is that. And so uh, so I don't think we should do that. You, um, uh, you know, I don't think we need to, to be propped up to um, conceptualize what the new, new journalism looks like. If we have a better idea for how to do journalism in Canada, the world will want it. Uh, and and we won't have to wait for the CRTC or the CRA to give us permission to you know, go build something you know, and you know, fill out long applications to bureaucrats. The legacies are still grabbing onto the government supports to survive, so that should be just done away with. And there's a question, there's not an answer yet, but there is a question about whether the government could do something to you know, enhance the Canadian brand, if you will, around journalism while we figure out what the market for that is. Yeah, I, I, I think you make a really good point that the, the global marketplace is, uh, it cuts both ways. It's not just a threat. The entire world is open to us right now. I'll, I'll, I'll leave everybody with a piece of advice. If you are going to try to start something up from scratch with an, eye, with an eye towards maybe being a player in that global space, you probably shouldn't put Canada in the title. That's my advice. <laughs> <laughs> so, what would you rename Canada Land? What's the name of your thing? Canada Land. Um, Jesse, I said if you're going to, I, I this is uh, I can just occupy this this space. It's fine with me. But you know, if if you're one of those ambitious type people, right? Uh, you know, go big, go bigger. I agree. Thank you, Ian. Uh, thank you. Pleasure, man. That's your Canada Land Show. I hope you enjoyed it. You can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything you send me. I respond when I can. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. Our website is canadalandshow.com. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. I make this show with Katie Jensen. We have a full offering this week. 
after today's show. This is Monday that we're releasing this. Tuesday is Canada Land Commons. Wednesday is a new episode of The Imposter. Check it out if you have not already. It is fantastic. Thursday is Shortcuts. And Friday, our newsletter, Not Sorry, which you can subscribe to on our website. This show is syndicated to community and campus radio stations across this country, 28 of them for free. We just give it away to anybody who wants to play this on the radio. And the person who puts that syndication together is Russell Gregg. If you like what we do, please support us. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.